Chapter 6 of The Double This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording was Siddharth. The Double by Fyodor Dostoevsky Translated by Constance Garnett Chapter 6 At 8 o'clock next morning, Mr. Golikin woke up in his bed. At once, all the extraordinary events of the previous day and the wild, incredible night, with all its almost impossible adventures, presented themselves to his imagination and memory with terrifying vividness, such intense diabolical malice on the part of his enemies, and, above all, the final proof of that malice froze Mr. Kulitkin's heart. But at the same time, it was all so strange, incomprehensible, wild, it seemed so impossible that it was really hard to credit the whole business. Mr. Kolikin was, indeed, ready to admit himself that it was all an incredible delusion, a passing aberration of the fancy, a darkening of the mind, if he had not fortunately known, by bitter experience, to what lengths spite will sometimes carry any one. What a pitch of ferocity an enemy may reach when he is bent on revenging his honour and prestige! Besides, Mr. Golitkin's exhausted limbs, his heavy head, his aching back, and the malignant cold in his head bore vivid witness to the probability of his expedition of the previous night and upheld the reality of it, and to some extent, of all that had happened during the expedition. And, indeed, Mr. Golitkin had known long, long before something was being got up among them, that there was someone else with them but after all thinking it over thoroughly he made up his mind to keep quiet to submit and not to protest for the time they are simply plotting to frighten me perhaps and when they see that i don't mind that i make no protest but keep perfectly quiet and put up with it meekly they'll give it up they'll give it up of themselves give it up of their own accord such, then, were the thoughts in the mind of Mr. Golitkin, as, stretching in his bed, trying to rest his exhausted limbs, he waited for Petrushka to come into his room as usual. He waited for a full quarter of an hour. He heard the lazy scamp fiddling about with the somewhere behind the screen, and yet he could not bring himself to call him. We may say more. Mr. Golikin was a little afraid of confronting Petrushka, why? Goodness knows, he thought. Goodness knows how that rascal looks at it all. He keeps on saying nothing, but he has his own ideas. At last, the door creaked, and Petrushka came in with a tray in his hands. Mr. Golikin stole a timid glance at him, impatiently waiting to see what would happen, waiting to see whether he would not say something about a certain circumstance. But Petrushka said nothing. He was, on the contrary, more silent, more glum, and ill-humoured than usual. He looked askance from under his brows at everything. Altogether, it was evident that he was very much put out about something. He did not even glance at his master, which, by the way, rather piqued the latter. Setting all he had brought on the table, he turned and went out of the room without a word. He knows, he knows, he knows all about it, 
that scoundrel, Mr. Golikin grumbled to himself as he took his tea. Yet our hero did not address a single question to his servant, though Petrushka came into his room several times afterwards on various errands. Mr. Golikin was in great trepidation of spirit. He dreaded going to the office. He had a strong presentiment that there he would find something that would not be just so. You may be sure, he thought, that as soon as you go you will light upon something. Isn't it better to endure in patience? Isn't it better to wait a bit now? Let them do what they like there. But I'd rather stay here a bit today, recover my strength, get better, and think over the whole affair more thoroughly. Then afterwards I can seize the right moment, fall upon them like snow from the sky, and get off scot-free myself. Reasoning like this, Mr. Golitkin spoke to pipe after pipe. Time was flying. It was nearly half-past nine. Why, it's half-past nine already, thought Mr. Golitkin. It's late for me to make my appearance. Besides, I'm ill. Of course I'm ill. I'm certainly ill. Who denies it? What's the matter with me? If they send to make inquiries, let the executive clerk come. And, indeed, what is the matter with me, really? My back aches, I have cough, and a cold in my head, and, in fact, it's out of the question for me to go out. Utterly out of the question. In such weather, I might be taken ill, and, very likely, die. Nowadays especially, the death rate is so high. With such reasoning, Mr. Kolitkin succeeded at last in setting his conscience at rest, and defending himself against the reprimands he expected from Andrei Filipovich for neglect of his duty. As a rule, in such cases, our hero was particularly fond of justifying himself in his own eyes with all sorts of irrefutable arguments, and so completely setting his conscience at rest. And so now, having completely soothed his conscience, he took up his pipe, filled it, and had no sooner settled down comfortably to smoke than he jumped up quickly from the sofa, flung away the pipe, briskly washed, shaved, and dressed his hair, got into his uniform, and so on, snatched up some papers, and flew to the office. Mr. Golikin went to his department timidly, in quivering expectation of something unpleasant, an expectation which was nonetheless disagreeable for being vague and unconscious. He sat timidly down in his invariable place next to the head clerk, Anton Antonovich Shetotochkin. Without looking at anything or allowing his attention to be distracted, he plunged into the contents of the papers that lay before him. He made up his mind and vowed to himself to avoid, as far as possible, anything provocative, anything that might compromise him, such as an indiscreet question just or unseemly allusions to any incidents of the previous evening. He made up his mind also to abstain from the usual interchange of civilities with his colleagues, such as inquiries after health and such like. But evidently it was impossible, out of the question, to keep to this anxiety and uneasiness in regard to anything near him that was annoying always worried him far more than the annoyance itself. And that was why, in spite of his inward woes to refrain from entering into anything, whatever happened, and to keep aloof from everything, Mr. Kolikim, from time to time, on the sly, very, very quietly, 
raised his head, and stealthily looked about him, to right and to left, peeped at the countenances of his colleagues, and tried to gather whether there were not something new and particular in them, referring to himself, and with sinister motives concealed from him. He assumed that there must be a connection between all that had happened yesterday and all that surrounded him now. At last, in his misery, he began to long for something, goodness knows what, to happen to put an end to it. Even some calamity he did not care. At this point, destiny caught Mr. Golutkin. He had hardly felt his desire when his doubts were sold in the strange and the most unexpected manner. The door leading from the next room suddenly gave a soft and timid creak, as though to indicate that the person about to enter was a very unimportant one, and a figure, very familiar to Mr. Golyadkin, stood shyly before the very table at which our hero was seated. The latter did not raise his head. No, he only stole a glance at him, the tiniest glance. But he knew all, he understood all, to every detail. He grew hot with shame, and buried his devoted head in his papers, with precisely the same object with which the ostrich, pursued by the hunters, hides his head in the burning sand. The new arrival bowed to Andrei Filipovich, and thereupon he heard a voice speaking in the regulation tone, of condescending tone, of politeness, with which all persons in authority address their subordinates in public offices. Take a seat here, said Andrei Filipovich, motioning the newcomer to Anton Antonovich's table. Here, opposite to Mr. Golikin, and we'll soon give you something to do. Andrei Filipovich ended by making a rapid gesture that decorously admonished the newcomer of his duty, and then he immediately became engrossed in the study of the papers that lay in a heap before him. Mr. Golikin lifted his eyes at last and that he did not fall into a swoon was simply because he had foreseen it all from the first, that he had been forewarned from the first, guessing in his soul who the stranger was. Mr. Golikin's first moment was to look quickly about him, to see whether there was any whispering, any office joke being cracked on the subject, whether anyone's face was agape with wonder, whether, indeed, someone had not fallen under the table from terror. But to his intense astonishment, there was no sign of anything of the sort. The behavior of his colleagues and companions surprised him. It seemed contrary to the dictates of common sense. Mr. Golikin was positively scared at this extraordinarily reticent. The fact spoke for itself. It was strange, horrible, uncanny thing. It was enough to rouse anyone. All this, of course, only passed rapidly through Mr. Golikin's mind. He felt as though he were burning in a slow fire, and indeed there was enough to make him. The figure that was sitting opposite Mr. Golikin was now his terror, it was a shame, it was his nightmare of the evening before. In short, was Mr. Golikin himself. Not the Mr. Golikin who was sitting now in his chair, with his mouth wide open and his pen petrified in his hands not the one who acred as assistant to his chief, not the one who liked to efface himself and slink away in the crowd, not the one whose department plainly said, don't touch me and I won't touch you, or don't interfere with me 
You see, I'm not touching you. No, this was another Mr. Gullikin, quite different, yet at the same time exactly like the first. The same height, the same figure, the same clothes, the same baldness. In fact, nothing, absolutely nothing, was lacking to complete the likeness, so that if one were to set them side by side, nobody, absolutely nobody, could have undertaken to distinguish which was the real Mr. Golikin and which was the new one, which was the original and which was the copy. Our hero was, if the comparison can be made, in a position of a man upon whom some practical joker has stealthily, by way of jest, turned a burning cross. What does it mean? Is it a dream? He wondered. Is it reality or the continuation of what happened yesterday? And besides, by what right is all this being done? Who sanctioned such a clerk? Who authorized this? Am I asleep? Am I in a waking dream? Mr. Golikin tried pinching himself, even tried to screw up his courage to pinch someone else. No, it was not a dream, and that was all about it. Mr. Golikin felt that the sweat was trickling down him in big drops. He felt that what was happening to him was something incredible, unheard of, and for that very reason was to complete his misery, utterly, unseemly. For Mr. Golikin realized and felt how disadvantageous it was to be the first example of such a burlesque adventure. He even began to doubt his own existence, and though he was prepared for anything and had been longing for his doubts to be settled in any way whatever, yet the actual reality was startling in its unexpectedness. His misery was poignant and overwhelming. At times he lost all power of thought and memory. Coming to himself, after such a moment, he noticed that he was mechanically and unconsciously moving the pen over the paper, mistrustful of himself. He began going over what he had written, and could make nothing out of it. At last, the other Mr. Golitkin, who had been sitting discreetly and decorously at the table, got up and disappeared through the door into the other room. Mr. Golitkin looked around. Everything was quiet. He heard nothing but the scratching of pens, the rustle of turning over pages, and the conversation in the corners furthest from Andrew Filipovitz's seat. Mr. Kolyakin looked at Andrei Antonovich, and as, in all probability, our hero's countenance fully reflected his real condition and harmonized with the whole position, and was consequently, from one point of view, very remarkable, good-natured Anton Antonovich, laying aside his pen, inquired after his health, and marked sympathy. I am very well, thank God, Anton Antonovich, said Mr. Golyatkin, stammering. I am perfectly well, Anton Antonovich. I am all right, Anton Antonovich, he added, uncertainly, not yet fully trusting Anton Antonovich, whose name he had mentioned so often. I fancied you were not quite so well, though that's not to be wondered at. No, indeed. Nowadays especially there's such a lot of illness going about. Do you know? Yes, Anton Antonovich. I know there is such a lot of illness. I did not mean that. Anton Antonovich, Mr. Golyatkin went on. 
looking intently at Anton Antonovich. You see, Anton Antonovich, I don't even know you. I don't even know half you, that is, I mean to say, how to approach this matter, Anton Antonovich. How so? I really... Do you know? I must confess I don't quite understand. You must explain, you know, in what way you are in difficulties, said Anton Antonovich, beginning to be in difficulties himself, seeing that there were actually tears in Mr. Golitkin's eyes. Really, Anton Antonovich, I hear... There's a clerk here, Anton Antonovich. Well, I don't understand now. I mean to say, Anton Antonovich, there was a new clerk here. Yes, there is a namesake of yours. What? cried Mr. Golitkin. I say a namesake of yours. His name is Golitkin, too. Isn't he a brother of yours? No, Anton Antonovich. I... Hmm, you don't say so? Why, I thought he must be a relation of yours. Do you know? There's a sort of family likeness. Mr. Golitkin was petrified with astonishment, and for the moment he could not speak. To preach so lightly such a horrible, unheard-of thing, a thing undeniably rare and curious in its way, a thing which would have amazed even an unconcerned spectator, to talk of a family resemblance when he could see himself as in a looking-glass. Do you know, Yakov Petrovich, what I advise you to do? Anton Antonovich went on. Go and consult a doctor. Do you know? You look somehow quite unwell. Your eyes look so peculiar. You know, there's a peculiar expression in them. No, Anton Antonovich, I feel, of course, that is, I keep wanting to ask about this clerk. Well, that is, have you not noticed, Anton Antonovich, something peculiar about him, something very marked? That is, that is, I mean, Anton Antonovich, a striking likeness with somebody, for instance, with me, for instance. You spoke just now, you say, Anton Antonovich, of a family likeness. You let slip the remark, you know, there really are sometimes twins exactly alike, like two drops of water, so that they can't be told apart. Well, it's that that I mean. To be sure, said Anton Antonovich, after a moment's thought, speaking as though he were struck by the fact for the first time. Yes, indeed, you're right. There is a striking likeness, and you are quite right in what you say. You really might be mistaken for one another, he went on, opening his eyes wider and wider. As, and do you know, Yakov Petrovich, it's positively a marvellous likeness, fantastic. In fact, as the saying is, that is, just as you. Have you observed, Yakov Petrovich, I wanted to ask you to explain it. Yes, I must confess, I didn't take particular notice at first. It's wonderful, it's really wonderful. And, you know, you are not a native of these parts, are you, Yakov Petrovich? No, he's not from these parts, you know, either. Perhaps he comes from the same part of the country as you do. Where, may I make bold to inquire, did your mother live for the most part? You say, in turn, in turn of it, that he's not a native of these parts? 
No, he's not. And indeed, how strange it is, continued the talkative Anton Antonovich, for whom it was a genuine treat to gossip. It may well arouse curiosity, and yet, you know, you might pass him by, brush against him, without noticing anything. But you mustn't be upset about it. It's just... It's a thing that does happen, do you know? The same thing, I must tell you, happened to my aunt, on my mother's side. She saw her own double before her death. No, I excuse me for interrupting you, Antoine Antonovich. I wanted to find out, Antoine Antonovich, how that clerk, that is, on what footing is he here? On the place of Semyon Ivanovich, to fill the vacancy left by his death. The post was vacant, so he was appointed. Do you know, I am told, poor Semyon Ivanovich left three children, all tiny dots. The widow fell at the feet of His Excellency. They do say she is hiding something. She's got a bit of money, but she is hiding it. No, Anton Antonovich, I was still referring to that circumstance. You mean, to be sure, but why are you so interested in that? I tell you, not to upset yourself. All this is temporary to some extent. Why, after all, you know, you have nothing to do with it. So it has been ordained by God Almighty. It's His will, and it is sinful repining. His wisdom is apparent in it. As far as I can make out, Yakov Petrovich, you are not to blame in any way. There are all sorts of strange things in the world. Mother Nature is liberal with her gifts, and you are not called upon to answer for it. You won't be responsible. Here, for instance, you have heard, I expect of those, what's their name? Oh, the Siamese twins, who are joined together at the back, live and eat and sleep together. I'm told they get a lot of money. Allow me, Anton Antonovich. I understand, I understand, yes. But what of it? It's no matter, I tell you. As far as I can see, there's nothing for you to upset yourself about. After all, he's a clerk. As a clerk, he seems to be a capable man. He says his name is Goliudkin, that he's not a native of this district, and that he's, and that he's a titular councillor. He had a personal interview with His Excellency. And how did His Excellency? It is all right. I am told he gave a satisfactory account of himself, gave his reasons, said, It's like this, Your Excellency, and that he was without means and anxious to enter the service, and would be particularly flattered to be serving under His Excellency. All that was proper, you know. He expressed himself neatly. He must be a sensible man, but of course he came with a recommendation. He couldn't have gotten without that. Oh, from whom? That is, I mean, who is it has had a hand in this shameful business? Yes, a good recommendation, I'm told. His Excellency, I'm told, laughed with Andrei Filipovich. Laughed with Andrei Filipovich? Yes, he only smiled and said, that it was all right, and that he had nothing against it, so long as he did his duty. Well, and what more? You relieve me to some extent, Andrei Antonovich. Go on, I entreat you. 
Excuse me. I must tell you again. Well, then, come. It's nothing. It's a very simple matter. You mustn't upset yourself, I tell you. And there's nothing suspicious about it. No, I... That is, Anton Antonovitch, I want to ask you, didn't His Excellency say anything more? About me, for instance? Well, to be sure, no, nothing of the sort. You can set your mind quite at rest. You know, it is, of course, a rather striking circumstance. And at first, why? Here, I, for instance, I scarcely noticed it. I really don't know why I didn't notice it till you mentioned it. But you can set your mind at rest entirely. He said nothing particular, absolutely nothing, added good-natured Anton Antonovich, getting up from his chair. So then, Anton Antonovich, I... Oh, you must excuse me. Here I've been gossiping about these trivial matters, and I've business that is important and urgent. I must inquire about it. Anton Antonovich. Andrew Filippovitch's voice sounded, summoning him politely. His Excellency has been asking for you. This minute. I'm coming this minute, Andrei Filipovich. And Anton Antonovich, taking a pile of papers, flew off first to Andrei Filipovich, and then into His Excellency's room. Then what is the meaning of it? thought Mr. Golitkin. Is there some sort of game going on? So the wind's in the quarter now. That's just as well, so things have taken a much pleasanter turn, our hero said to himself, rubbing his hands, and so delighted that he scarcely knew where he was. So, our position is an ordinary thing, so it turns out to be all nonsense. It comes to nothing at all. No one has done anything, really, and they are not perching. The rascals, they are sitting busy over their work. That's splendid. Splendid. I like the good-natured fellow. I've always liked him, and I'm always ready to respect him. Though, it must be said, one doesn't know what to think. This Anton Antonovich, I'm afraid to trust him. His grey hair, and he's getting shaky. It's an immense and glorious thing that His Excellency said nothing, and let it pass. It's a good thing. I approve. Only why does Andrei Filipovich interfere with his grins? What's he got to do with it? The old rogue. Always on my track. Always like a black cat. On the watch to run across a man's path. Always thwarting and annoying a man. Always annoying and thwarting a man. Mr. Golikin looked around him again, and again his hopes revived. Yet he felt that he was troubled by one remote idea, an unpleasant idea. It even occurred to him that he might try somehow to make up to the clerks to be the first in the field, even, perhaps when leaving the office or going up to them as though about his work, to drop a hint in the course of conversation, saying, This is how it is. What a striking likeness, gentlemen, a strange circumstance, a burlesque farce, that is. Treat it all lightly, and, in this way, sound the depth of the danger. Devils breed in still waters, our hero concluded inwardly. Mr. Golikin, however, only contemplated this. He thought better of it in time. 
he realized that this would be going too far. That's your temperament, he said to himself, tapping himself lightly on the forehead. As soon as you gain anything, you are delighted. You are a simple soul. No, you and I had better be patient. Yapo Petrovich, let us wait and be patient. Nevertheless, as we have mentioned already, Mr. Golitkin was buoyed up with the most confident hopes, feeling as though he had risen from the dead. No matter, he thought. It's as though a hundred tons had been lifted off my chest. Here is a circumstance, to be sure. The box has been opened by the lid. Krylov is right. A clever chap. A rogue, that Krylov. A great fable right. And as for him, let him work in the office. And good luck to him, so long as he doesn't meddle or interfere with anyone. Let him work in the office. I consent and approve. Meanwhile the hours were passing, flying by, and before he noticed the time, it struck four. The office was closed. Andrei Filipovich took his hat, and all followed his example in due course. Mr. Kolyatkin dwaddled a little on purpose, long enough to be the last to go out, when all others had gone their several ways. Going out from the street, he felt as though he were in paradise, so that he even felt inclined to go longer way round and to walk along the Nevsky Prospect. To be sure this is destiny, thought our hero. This is an unexpected turn in affairs, and the weather is more cheerful, and the frost, and the little sledges, and the frost suits the Russian. The Russian gets on capitally with the frost. I like the Russian, and the dear little snow, and the first few flakes in the autumn. The sportsman would say, it would be nice to go shooting hares in the first snow. Well, there. It doesn't matter. This was how Mr. Golitkin's enthusiasm found expression. Yet something was threatening in his brain. Not exactly melancholy, but at times he had such a knowing at his heart that he did not know how to find relief. Let us wait for the day, though, and then we shall rejoice. And, after all, you know, what does it matter? Come, let us think over. Let us look at it. Come, let us consider it. My young friend, let us consider it. Why, a man's exactly like you in the first place. Absolutely the same. Well, what is there in that? If there is such a man, why should I weep over it? What is it to me? I stand aside, I whistle to myself, and that's all. That's what I laid myself open to. And that's all about it. Let him work in the office. Well, it's strange and marvellous, they say, that the CME's twins. But why bring in the CME's twins? They are twins, of course. But even great men, you know, sometimes look queer creatures. In fact, we know from history that the famous Suvorov used to crow like a cock. But there, he did all that with political motives. And he was a great general. But what are generals after all? But I keep myself to myself. That's all. I don't care about anyone else. And, secure in my innocence, I scorn my enemies. I am not one to intrigue, and I am proud of it. Gentle, straightforward, neat and nice, meek and mild. All at once Mr. Golikton broke off. His tongue failed him, and he began trembling like a leaf. 
He even closed his eyes for a minute, hoping, however, that the object of his terror was only an illusion. He opened his eyes at last and stole a timid glance to the right. No, it was not an illusion. His acquaintance of that morning was tripping along by his side, smiling, peeping into his face, and apparently seeking an opportunity to begin a conversation with him. The conversation was not begun. However, they both walked like this for about fifty paces. All Mr. Golyatkin's efforts were concentrated on muffling himself up, hiding himself in his coat, and pulling his head down as far as possible over his eyes. To complete his mortification, his companion's coat and hat looked as though they had been taken off Mr. Golyatkin himself. Sir, our hero articulated at last, trying to speak almost in a whisper, and not looking at his companion. We are going different ways, I believe. I am convinced of it. In fact, he said, after a pause, I am convinced indeed that you quite understand me, he added, rather severely in conclusion. I could have wished, his companion pronounced at last, I could have wished. No, no doubt, you will be magnanimous and pardon me. I don't know to whom to address myself here, my circumstances. I trust you will pardon my intrusiveness. I fancied, indeed, that, moved by compassion, you showed some interest in me this morning. On my side, I felt drawn to you from the first moment. I, at this point, Mr. Golyakin inwardly wished that his companion might sink into the earth. If I might venture to hope that you would accord me, an indulgent hearing, Yakov Petrovich, we here. You had better come home with me, answered Mr. Golikin. We will cross now to the other side of the Nevsky Prospect. It will be more convenient for us there. And then, by the little back street, we'd better go by the back street. Very well. By all means, let us go by the back street. Our hero's me companion responded timidly suggesting by the tone of his reply that it was not for him to choose, and that in his position he was quite prepared to accept the back street. As for Mr. Golikin, he was utterly unable to grasp what was happening to him. He could not believe in himself. He could not get over his amazement. End of chapter 6